Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Tuesday night, Bay Street success story Roy Ratnavel shares his story of fleeing war-torn Sri Lanka in the 80s at a time in a prison camp there and arriving in Canada with little more than $50 in his pocket and the grit and determination needed to make his way in his new home. And it's a tale he's put down on paper on the pages of his new book released today called Prisoner 1056, How I Survived War and Found Peace. It is one of the great marketing success stories of all time, certainly of the past half century, how Nike went from running shoe to sportswear empire in part because of just one athlete and one sneaker, the Air Jordan. It is all the subject of a new movie called Air, and we dig into that history from heel to toe. But first, over 155,000 public service workers are going on strike. The Public Service Alliance of Canada announced the move after the union failed to reach an agreement with the federal government by a set deadline on Tuesday evening. What are the sticking points? How likely is it to be over quickly? And what impact will it have on the rest of us? We find out. Well, the Public Service Alliance of Canada's president stood in front of the cameras a little less than an hour ago and had this to say. We will remain at the table. We will remain for as long as it takes during the strike. And we will remain on strike until the government addresses our key issues at the bargaining table. And there you had it. The deadline was 9 p.m. Eastern. That went by about an hour ago. And so 155,000 public service workers are indeed on strike after the union failed to reach an agreement with the federal government. Um, the largest public service union, again, had their deadline for 9 p.m. Eastern Tuesday for the two sides to make a deal. It's come and gone. PSAC is pushing for annual raises of 4.5% over the next three years, arguing the increases are necessary to keep pace with inflation and the cost of living. We know all about that. Uh, just for a bit of context, here's what Chris Elward had to say on this subject yesterday. This government has said they believe in workers. Well, if that's true, come to the table and demonstrate that so that no worker in this country is left behind. Workers didn't cause inflation. We shouldn't have to burden that, uh, that, that responsibility. So a bit of uh, what the mood is like right now. Now, of course, this means uh, a lot. A strike would affect many federal services, including tax processing, passport renewals, employment insurance, social insurance and Canada pension plan, applications and services with Indigenous services, Canada and Veterans Affairs, Canada as well. So lots in the mix here. The union's latest public wage proposal, again, was 4.5% for 2021, 22 and 23. They've been without a contract for a while. Well, the Treasury Board uh, last offered an increase of wages of about 2.06% on average over four years. So uh, the two sides still fairly far apart as far as we can tell, although they wouldn't go in to what exactly uh, was lacking at this point in time. The Prime Minister was asked about this earlier today. Here's what he had to say. On the public service negotiations, I think it's really important that Canadians can continue to rely on uh, the kinds of services they need from the federal government, and that's why uh, both parties at the table are negotiating extremely diligently and with uh, a lot of intensity to try and resolve this. Well, they haven't resolved it yet. Uh, David Campfield is coordinator of the Labour Studies Program and an associate professor at the University of Manitoba, and he joins me now. David, thank you. Good evening. So no agreement. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, we're so used in this business, at least, to those last-minute deals, right? And, and it didn't happen tonight. Surprised by that? Not that surprised, no. I 
thought that there was a very good chance that there'd be a strike just because there are some pretty significant disagreements between the two sides that I didn't think would be resolved. I don't think it's going to be a long strike, but uh, it's not a surprise to me that it's come to this. So what do you think is going on behind the scenes here? Clearly, I mean, you know, uh, the, the president wouldn't talk about what exactly the gaps are right now, but we know the gap in uh, salary increases was a big one. But there were other things on the table, too. Right. It's not just about wages. Uh, it's also about a whole range of issues. One of the most important of those is uh, the union attempting to negotiate uh, some provisions about remote work into the collective agreement, because right now there's nothing uh, in their contract about the rules around how that uh, will be applied. And so I think they're looking for some, at least something that uh, would provide some clarity and some, some fairness across the board. The way that the federal government uh, brought, about, brought about a kind of um, unilateral order that said everybody who had been working remotely had to be back, um, you know, at least two days a week, that regardless of the nature of the, the work and the specifics of the situation, I think that upset a lot of a lot of workers. Um, there are also some other interesting questions, uh, I believe, that are still being negotiated. The union had raised the issue of uh, the so-called right to disconnect. Uh, in other words, workers would not be required to be on work email after their work hours. Um, and they'd also reported that the employer of Treasury Board was demanding some concessions that would weaken their job security language. Right. So, so some things that are far outside, because we always think about, about wages in these situations, and clearly the wage demands make a certain amount of sense. I mean, infl- we all know what inflation's been like, and this contract goes back a while. They've been without a contract for a bit. Uh, but how far apart do you reckon they are when it comes to those important wage, uh, wage considerations? Well, it, not knowing what is actually on the table at this very moment, you know, behind closed doors, it's difficult to say. Um, I think it's certainly something that can be you know, where an agreement could be reached. I just think the important background context for all this is the way that between 2019 and the end of last year, prices went up by 11%, which is much, you know, more than wages were going up. So um, workers have, have lost some of the buying power of their real wages. That's true for most workers. Uh, and so the union is trying to catch up uh, to that. And as you say, this is something that's been experienced by, by lots of people. How does this compare to, I mean, we've seen other, a few at least, a few other public sector contracts be negotiated in that time. How how do PSAC's demands compare to what we've been seeing uh, over the course of the past? I mean, certainly since inflation reared its head, uh, compared to some of the other contracts we've seen with public service workers since. Uh, you know, it's, it's fairly comparable. I think what makes this, one of the things that distinguishes it, though, is distinctively different is some of these other issues beyond wages, which are being wages being negotiated across the private and public sectors. Um, and I mean, not to mention, because a lot of people, I think, don't realize this, that in fact, in the last uh, number of years, um, private sector workers have actually been, sorry, let me rephrase that, non-unionized workers have actually right. been doing better than unionized workers. Um, and so there's that kind of a, a, a background to it. But having these issues like um, remote work and the right to disconnect, that's less common than uh, prioritizing wages, which is, is a pretty common issue at the bargaining table right now. Yeah, one that I've been reading about was uh, a request for extra pay for shifts that stretch past 4 p.m. and so on on weekdays. Uh, I think it was 250 an hour premium and so on. I, I mean, you always look at these things and wonder where the give is. Where do you think the give is on each side here? I mean, remote work is clearly something that should have been negotiated, but I gather with 155,000 employees, they wanted to put in something that was relatively uniform. Uh, but where do you think the give is here? 
Well, I mean, it's, it's hard to know the, what the bottom line is. I do think that the, the priority, or at the end of the day, I suspect that the top priority for the union negotiators will be to make some progress on wages beyond what the employer had, had previously been offering. I think that's probably the, the largest, you know, the top priority for the largest number of people. Um, not all members of PSAC feel really strongly about the, uh, the remote work, for example. Um, so, you know, what their bottom line is is something that's known only to a very small number of, of union officials. And I, I wouldn't want to speculate about what they're prepared to settle for. Right. The federal government's playing a bit of a balancing act here. Clearly, 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 these are services which people have already been, you know, the general public's already been somewhat dissatisfied with. If you look at passport applications and so forth over the past while, um, you would think the, pub, the federal government might be trying to avoid angering the public anymore. At the same time, they have to play this balancing act with uh, with wages as well or with other concessions. Uh, what's in it for the, for the federal government, do you think? What are, where are they coming to? How are they coming at this one? Well, on the one hand, I think the federal government doesn't, you know, want to anger the the workers who provide federal services to people that much, and it, they must think down the line there's going to be an election, and they don't want to push more people to vote for a party other than the, the liberals. Um, so there's a political consideration there. They don't want to have a you know really sharp antagonism with the the leaders of these um, of, of this union. Um, on the other hand, they're also trying to set a, a kind of uh, tone of fiscal restraint. And that's both in terms of the way that they're planning their own finances, but also I think there's a consideration where they probably face some pressure from other employers to not grant a higher wage settlement because they know that you know, a high-profile set of negotiations like this could potentially raise expectations for other groups of workers. So there's a complex kind of calculation that's in, involved here with different competing priorities that they're, they're trying to juggle. Yeah, I could, I could hear Tiff Macklem whispering into the Prime Minister's ear. Not, not literally, but, uh, but you know, certainly the Bank of Canada have been, warn, have been warning about this, about wage inflation for a while now. That's true. I mean, I think that that opens up another whole debate because I don't think the inflation that we're seeing, not just in Canada, but internationally, is driven by rising wages. I mean, I just right. don't think the, the wage increases have been sufficient that that could possibly explain what's been going on. I think there are a lot of other factors at play. Um, and so I would just want to say that in order to kind of not confuse the issue. But uh, there's definitely pressure from, from those quarters, more fiscal conservative quarters. Well, we are still, uh, you know, a ways apart. Uh, but we're staying at the table because we're still hopeful and our goal is still to get to a tentative agreement. There's Chris Aylward. He's the president of the Public Service Alliance of Canada. That's in the last, uh, just a little over an hour now, an hour ago now, that uh, PSAC announced that 155,000 federal workers will be going out on strike uh, as of 12.05. So we're coming up on that uh, in the next little bit, just less than 90 minutes away. Uh, Speaking with me now is Dave Camfield. He's coordinator of the Labor Studies Program and an associate professor at the University of Manitoba. So, David, how are we going to see that? You think this might be a relatively short one, but how do you think it'll impact uh, for the rest of us come tomorrow morning? Well, it all depends on how people are going to be interacting with the federal government and the services that it provides. So, you know, people looking for passports, for example, are going to experience, uh, you know, delays with, with that. Uh, people who are dealing with their tax returns, we're going to deal with the fact that the Canada Revenue Agency workers are on strike, uh, which will probably be of more concern to people who are expecting a refund than, uh, than other people. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's, so there's a lot of variation. But then there are some businesses that will also be affected uh, because there are some PSAC members who work in, for example, uh, ports, 
Um, and then there'd be others, that, for example, the uh, Food Inspection Agency, the CFIA. So uh, their being on strike will have impacts on particular businesses as well, uh, which is different from what ordinary people would be experiencing in terms of the services that they might or might not be trying to uh, to access for the from the federal government. Right. And on this one politically, too, I mean, uh, you know, there's there's always the option of back-to-work legislation, I imagine, but the NDP have already said, you know, point blank, they're not going to support that. And we see uh, in this agreement between the NDP and the Liberals, this is a one that uh, that could create some divisions. It's a good point, because the federal Liberals do currently rely on the NDP in order to be able to have their majority and, and pass the legislation that they want, according to the deal that they reached. Uh, so this is something which constrains the uh, the Liberals' maneuver. Now, they, they might, you know, conceivably they could decide uh, at some point to uh, bring in legislation and rely on the votes of the Conservatives to pass it, but that would probably torch the agreement with the, the NDP, so I don't think it's very likely at this point. Um, you know, I don't think that uh, there's an appetite for a, for a long strike uh, on either side, so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah. The other thing that's been of interest, and this is sort of just an aside, is that given all this argument over remote work, a whole lot of uh, Public Service Alliance members are going to find themselves sort of at the office, quote unquote, for the first time on picket lines because they're being asked to go out and picket. But some of them never even set foot in an office for the federal government before. Yeah, I mean, that's it's true for some, because there was this uh, unilateral, everybody's supposed to be back in the workplace at least two days a week uh, decision that was made earlier, but I have heard that there, that hasn't been applied or it's been uh, postponed for some people, in part because in some workplaces there actually weren't facilities to have everybody come back. Um, right. And also there's some concerns, I think, about retention um, for you know, for some some situations, the employers decided to just kick this can down the road, since they don't want to lose people in a situation where the job market's already you know more favorable for for workers than certainly than it was in 2004 when the the last time there was a big PSAC strike. Um, in terms of public sympathy on this one, um, I, I've heard Chris Aylward sort of speak quite passionately about getting support from the rest of us for uh, his membership, his 155,000 members. Given, um, you know, everyone's been facing inflation, you, you mentioned earlier that non-unionized workers have had more significant raises than uh, than unionized workers, or at least public service workers of late. Do you get the sense the Canadian population sort of on side with this one? I guess we'll see, right? I think we'll see, exactly. But I think there's... there's uh significant potential for people to be sympathetic precisely because so many people can ex- understand the uh, the issues around the uh, the falling buying power of, of people's wages uh, you know and I think if people who read about you know what the actual wages are of many of these workers they'll learn that you're not for the most part very high paid uh, and so I think there is that potential for sympathy again I think it's different than the climate was back in 2004 or in, in 1991 for those other big PSAC strikes you know certainly there will be people trying to you know whip up uh, sentiment against the union but we'll have to see how it plays out yeah, it's going to be interesting. So you, you predict it mightn't be too long. David Camfield, we'll see. I mean, we'll see. These, these things have a way of uh, sorting themselves out when push comes to shove. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks very much. It seems like vacations are the one thing, or of many things, but vacations always seem to ensnarl the Prime Minister 
in a whole lot more controversy than one would expect. There was Christmas 2016, where the ethics commissioner ruled that Justin Trudeau broke multiple federal ethics rules by accepting a ride on a private helicopter and staying on a private island belonging to the Aga Khan. There was the trip to Tofino to go surfing on the first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation a few years back. And now another trip to the tropics has Trudeau in hot water. Radio Canada reported today that he and his family spent the Christmas holidays at a luxurious estate in Jamaica that belongs to a family with close ties to the Trudeaus that go back decades. The Prospect Estate near Ocho Rios in Jamaica is owned by Peter Green. The Greens of the Trudeaus have been close dating back to the 70s and Pierre Trudeau. Justin was even there. Uh, the Prime Minister, the current Prime Minister was even there as a child. There are photos of them. Uh, now the trip cost taxpayers roughly $160,000, says Radcan, because of travel-related security and personnel costs. And some staff were also put up at nearby, at a nearby all-inclusive resort, which cost the federal treasury even more. Now, according to the prime minister's office, the prime minister reimbursed the equivalent amount or value of a commercial flight for the personal trip for himself and his families. As per the rules, the Trudeaus were required to travel on a government plane for that trip. The PMO did not want to say if the Prime Minister paid for his accommodation or other expenses out of pocket during this trip, which took place from Boxing Day to January 4th of this year. And Radio Canada also revealed that the Greens had made a large donation two years ago to the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation, which has been in the news a lot of late, even though the Prime Minister himself stepped away from that foundation back when he became Liberal leader in 2013. All of this had all three main opposition parties on the offensive today claiming the PM is out of touch. This is about influence and power for the super rich. So why won't he answer? How much should he pay in accommodation per night at this luxurious villa? Well, neither the Office of the Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner nor the PMO would state whether they were aware of the Green family, that the Green family is a donor to the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation when they evaluated the trip. Uh, the Prime Minister asked, answered some questions from reporters today on this. It's been about 50 years that this uh, family and ours have been friends. Um, we worked, as we do, uh, with all vacations with the Ethics Commissioner to make sure uh, that all the rules are followed. And there is the Prime Minister. Joining me now with more on this is Geneviève Tellier. She's a professor of political studies at the University of Ottawa. Geneviève, thank you. Thank you very much. It's remarkable how these vacations always land the Prime Minister in trouble. But this one came out of again. Uh, and what did you make of it? Because, you know, you can sort of look at it and say, OK, well, he took a holiday. They, they own this family for a very long time. But once again, something sort of feels off about this one. Yes, you're right. I think the, the good expression is it's still off and it's still like he haven't listened from the, he haven't learned from the past. And so it's not the first one we hear though, that kind of, a, that, that kind of stories. You've mentioned the Agakan trip, for instance. Uh, people at the time thought it was too expensive, uh, with uh, powerful people. And then the story repeats itself again, again this, this time. And so uh, one wonders, well, does the prime minister first is able to learn his list? listen and not to repeat uh, past mistakes or uh, maybe he thinks those are not mistakes and uh, uh, it's up for us to adapt to the situation and uh, he will continue but uh, yes it has uh, Canadians struggling with that kind of a story because we wonder uh, is he uh, losing the main important thing on that which is um, not just to follow the rule but also to work on behalf of Canadians and uh, try to shield itself from 
um, undue influences and, um, and making good decisions. Right. What do you make? I mean, I know that the Greens and the Trudeaus have been friends for a very long time. The families have been friends for a very long time. There Again, there was an image today that was being circulated of a very young Justin Trudeau at the very same resort with his father back in the 70s. Does that absolve any of this or, or are there are there questions we still need to have answered on this one? Uh, normally, I would say, uh, okay, that's fine. I understand uh, you have friends. You have friends for a long time, and it's not because you become a prime minister that you stop seeing everybody. Now, what is puzzling in that case is that the prime minister has not been very transparent about that. And so we've learned the story via the media. We've learned it today. We were not aware of that when it happened uh, during the holidays. And that could make us wonder why Why is the case? Why doesn't he want us to know about that, uh, that vacation? Why does he want us to know about its ties with the Green family? Um, as you mentioned, the Green family is also involved in the Trudeau Foundation. Um, and so when Justin Trudeau is saying to us, well, I have no ties with the foundation, well, yes, maybe no direct ties, but you know people that are working or have close ties with the foundation. So you should be more transparent. And the fact that he is not that transparent, well, of course, we will raise questions and we will wonder, well, why? Why is he not telling us all the all this, the story, and uh, why does he tell us that he know the he, he have known the Greens for 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 many years, and that would be okay for him to go on vacation? Yeah, the ethics commission I know signed off on this one, but there are some there's an asterisk there too, right? Because the ethics commissioner doesn't necessarily or doesn't seem to have known all the circumstances, or we don't know what the ethics commissioner knew in this case. I don't think. Yes, and it's strange because the ethics uh, commissioner, who is no longer uh, in position, so he resigned for health reasons a few weeks ago. Right, Mr. Dion, yeah. Mr. Dion, yes. Uh, he tweeted something interesting this morning, and he said, well, you know, uh, from a legal point of view, it was fine, uh, but people can disagree with the decision of uh, Trudeau going on vacation. And so what he was basically saying is that, yes, from legally, you are, uh, it's fine what you have done, it's okay, but the spirit of the law may have been lost. And so what you should have done from an ethical point of view, uh, it's a question also of perception. And so how Canadians will perceive that? And is it wise for you to go on vacation, on a luxury vacation? And I think the word is luxury, that is important. On a luxury uh, vacation, uh, knowing that it's going to cost a lot for taxpayers. And at a time where many Canadians are economically struggling with their own finances. And so uh, that may not have been a wise decision. And I think that even uh, Mario Dion, uh, the former commissioner, acknowledged that. But for him, I think, uh, there were, legally there was nothing bad. Now, we may question the law, and so maybe we, we could also think, well, should we change the law? But if we do so, maybe we will restrain even more the prime minister. Is that wise? I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, we should think about that. Uh, but yes, as you said, uh, from uh, with respect to the law, there's there's nothing, uh, there's no wrongdoing uh, from the part of the prime minister. Yeah, Mario Dumont's tweet was quite cryptic, actually. He reads, gifts from a friend are acceptable from a legal ethical point of view. Public opinion sometimes uses a, uses a different test, and that is healthy because there are questions about who paid for this trip, or at least who paid for those rooms. And again, uh, the opposition leader Pierre Poliev w- was bringing that up today, 
and uh, the prime minister wasn't answering those questions. So I suppose if you read between the lines here, uh, the bill was footed by by the family, by the Green family, as, as far as we could tell. I'm not saying that's definite, but that seems to be what what's being, if you read between the lines, that seems to be what's being said, or at least no one's saying he didn't. That, that's my also my my interpretation. It's uh, what he's saying is that like you and me, we could go to a cabin owned by friends, and they won't charge us for the night. And so True. I guess it's the same thing for for the Green family. So yes, they are right. They can uh, invite uh, the prime minister and his family to stay um, there, uh, and they won't charge them. And uh, I think they always saying, well, the, yes, they, uh, they they know each other for many years, so from legally speaking, there's there's no issue with that. Uh, so that's that's one aspect of the cost, but there's also all the costs that taxpayers have to pay. And so uh, on top of that, uh, you have a prime minister that uh, travels, and it is very expensive for us, uh, uh, for him to go outside. And so he bring, he needs a level of security. And the question that I have personally is that uh, do we have, is is it, the right amount, or is it too expensive? I think we're we're talking about one hundred uh, sixty thousand dollars for one week vacation. It does not even include transportation. So the Challenger, the airplane, is is, is a part. And so just for security. So yes, it's, I understand that we have to pay one uh, a bill for that. But uh, the the amount for me seems excessive. And uh, there's also the point that who's accountable for that? And so I'm not saying it's necessarily the prime minister. I don't expect him to be knowledgeable on all the issue as far as cost is, is concerned or concerned. But um, who's answering for that? Who's decide what to pay? Uh, what are the accounting mechanism, uh, the accountability mechanism that are put in place that we are sure that uh, the, the money is well spent? And that, I would say, applies for the prime minister, but maybe for other officials. Like, I'm thinking the governor general yeah. recently have a trip in Germany and was also very very expensive and so who accounts for that Geneviève Tellier is with us this half hour, Professor of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa. We're talking about uh, the Prime Minister in hot water once again for another trip to the tropics, this time over the most recent Christmas period from Boxing Day to January the 4th. He was in Jamaica at a very, very nice place. Apparently the maximum the rooms go for there is about $9,000 a night. It's not clear. Reading through the lines, it looks like his hosts, the Green family, who have known the Trudeaus for a very long time, footed the bill for the stay, but of course there was about $160,000 of taxpayers' money involved uh, with all the security and so on, having staff there. He has to fly uh, down on a government plane. He reimburses for the value of a commercial flight, but there's a lot more expenses there. Uh, Geneviève, I was interested in reading, there were some quotes in the Radio-Canada article today that were pretty interesting. And one of them was an unnamed source, of course, uh, in liberal circles about the optics. And the quote was, we wonder why he goes to places like that. And I guess people around him also think, wait a second, we're already, there, there was the $6,000 a night hotel room in London for the Queen's mm-hmm. funeral. We're already trying to bat away these controversies. And you're going where for for the holidays? <laughs> I, I mean, it must be, if you're around him, you must think, please don't do this now. I mean, the, the timing is all wrong. 
And yes, he's been doing that since the beginning. I don't know if you recall, True. but uh, in the first month uh, of his, man- his first mandate, he was on the cover of every magazine and it was uh, showing this image of a jet setter and a new face of luxury and well-connected. And so I think it is in his personality and he likes being with people like that and uh, luxury also. And but and, and it's difficult to, to, to rub it off. And so uh, I could pretty well imagine his staff, his entourage saying, oh no, not again. Uh, and, and the reason that we, uh, the question we could ask is why is, is still this going on? And so, as I said before, uh, maybe he's not learning the lesson of the past he should have been learning. Or maybe there's another explanation, which would be only, well, he likes it and he knows he could go by, get, get off. Uh, uh, with that, because uh, if you look, he has been re-elected, even though he went to the Agakan uh, Island and, right. and has done other other trip, and so uh, maybe for him it's not an issue, or it's not an important issue, and that may not be the ballot question for the next election, and so he won't change uh, the way he he behaves, and so that that could be I an explanation. But I mean, but being out of touch, I mean. <laughs> Again, you know, in 2015, when he was first elected, he had that honeymoon, and we saw the pictures of him abroad. And, uh, you know, I grew up in Montreal, so I know where he grew up. Uh, you know, you know, he's he's from he's a you know he's the former prime minister's son. He's he grew up in privilege. We get that, but it just seems like this time, like especially this Christmas, when everyone was struggling with food prices, when when you know everything inflation was through the roof, people weren't able to go see their loved ones because it was too expensive to get around. And then you read that the PM was off, you know, hanging out in Ocho at some luxury $9,000 a night resort. It just looks so bad. And I, you feel like it's going to catch up to him eventually. Like eventually yeah. he's going to do this one too many times. I, I thought the hotel room in London was, you know, again, it was very expensive. I was there for it. So I bumped into him right near that hotel actually, because we were all there covering it. And it made a certain amount of sense for him to be at that hotel because it was near Canada House. It was near Buckingham. You know, it was near Buckingham Palace. It was near uh, Westminster Abbey and so on. But this one, I mean, they were still deflecting those questions about who was sta- who stayed in that room. And he was off in Jamaica. Yes. And at the time, you, you recall, everybody was uh, strangled uh, in Mexico because there were no airplanes to come back to right. Canada. And so he has his personal airplane aircraft to go on vacation. Yes, out of touch. I think that's the main, uh, that that will be the main issue. And uh, I thought that opposition party, first of all, today they all have the same message. They all said that. So they were unanimous about that. That makes Singh made a very good point, I think, saying, well, how could you understand what Canadians are going through if he's that out of touch? And so he doesn't understand what's going on. He doesn't understand what it is to to have a tight budget and not to go on vacation, uh, to struggle with inflation, the housing issue. And so uh, when I heard, heard him this uh, afternoon saying in the House of Commons, well, uh, the opposition party should help us pass a budget that will help Canadians, uh, that's not enough. It's too abstract. And so uh, the reality is that people like leaders, like prime minister or premier that uh, show concern on what they are living in. I, I'm, 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 I would like to do a parallel between Doug Ford and, and Justin Trudeau, where right. Doug Ford also is well, he's wealthy, he's well off, and you will never see such a behavior from his part. Uh, in fact, uh, what his big event of the, of the year is to do a barbecue in his garden. And so yeah. that's that's about the most what's he doing. Maybe he's doing other things, but we don't know about that. And so, and people, 
think I like Doug Ford for that reason because they can relate to him. And, and when Doug Ford speaks, it's about the, the, the people of Ontario struggling and trying to make ends meet. And, and uh, so he shows concern about that. And we don't have that sense uh, from Justin Trudeau. No. Well, Geneviève Tellier, thank you so much for your time on this one tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you very, very much for the invitation. Galen West. And that's why you'll find so much amazing Canadian produce in our stores right now. Because nothing tastes like fresh food grown close to home. All right, you guys ready to eat? Yes. Yeah, Galen's sitting down for a picnic out in a field somewhere, somewhere verdant, somewhere a pastoral, agricultural looking. I'm not sure it's ever happened, but maybe it has. Who knows? Uh, the big news today is that uh, Galen Weston is going to step back, at least from his day-to-day role as president of Loblaw Companies. It was announced by the company today. He will stay on in many ways. He's still uh, that company's board chair. He stays on as CEO of parent company George Weston Limited. Of course, Loblaw operates some 2,400 grocery stores across the country. It's a big it's a big one. Um, you know, and, and, and Galen Weston as, as as its face, now he, I think he only took over as in that role in 2021, but he's sort of been the face of the company for quite a while now. And it feels like today was sort of both those things happening at once. Like he's he's both stepping back and literally stepping out of the limelight as far as Loblaw is concerned. He led a bit of a charmed life when he was doing those aw shucks commercials, right? I mean, they were charming in some ways. Oh, I found this stuff or our coffee is the best. I mean, it was kind of interesting. But, um, you know, those folksy commercials, he's, he's sort of turned from hero to heel, to borrow a wrestling phrase, uh, fairly quickly because he's been the subject of criticism from a lot of politicians and the public as the company has turned record profits while Canadians coped with soaring food prices, fairly or unfairly, he sort of became the target of all of this. Now, he was grilled by MPs back in March at committee at a committee that were looking into the high price, high price of groceries, and, and he had this to say afterwards. You know, we recognize that this is a very difficult challenge. Uh, we also, you know, are absolutely confident that Loblaw is doing the right things in very difficult circumstances on behalf of consumers. Um, and we are certainly not responsible for food price inflation in this country. Yeah, we've seen lots of food price inflation in, in other places too, right? So there is a, there is a global trend going on. Things weren't helped for Galen Weston when he had been when it was announced he'd been given a one point two million dollar raise in twenty twenty two, bringing his total pay package to eleven point seven nine million, which isn't that huge for a CEO like him, but it's big money for the rest of us. Consultants hired by his family-controlled company determined that he was underpaid, which he may well be. But still, again, as we were talking about with the Prime Minister, this is a question of perception. So who's waiting in the wings? Um, Well, unlike Galen Weston, it's a name that most Canadians, I suspect, won't recognize. Per Bank is currently the president and CEO of Denmark's largest retailer. So he's making the trip over here to uh, take over from Weston. So let's talk about the decision, the timing, and the incoming CEO. To help us with that is Marvin Ryder. He's Professor of Marketing and Entrepreneurship at McMaster University's DeGroote School of Business in Hamilton. Uh, Marvin, thank you. Glad to be with you. So tell me a bit about the timing here, because it feels like uh, it feels like this was coming, and, and here we are. <laughs> yes, here we are. Well, I have to take you back, if you don't mind, first to 2021. There was a big yes. event in Loblaw's history in 2021. The CEO at that time announced she was going to retire. And we had expected that they would make the chief operating officer the new CEO. But the chief operating officer said, well, in 2023, I plan to retire. So the board turned to Galen Weston, who was their chair, 
and had all these other positions. And they said, well, Galen, why don't you step into the role? Remember, 2021, we're in COVID. It's going to be difficult to go out and interview people. Why don't you step into that role? And so that's what he is. He's been the CEO for the last couple of years. And there's a lot of people today thinking, oh, he's being demoted or he's lost the job. No, this was never the plan that he was going to be the CEO forever, that he was going to get out of the road. Now, today they announced the new chief executive officer, Per Bank, as you say, from Denmark. Uh, Why did they announce it today if he's not taking the job until 2024? Well, they've still got to recruit a new chief operating officer, and the right person to do that would be your new CEO. So he will be involved in that decision so that in the first quarter of next year, they'll both be ready to assume their leadership positions. And then Galen can go back to what he was doing before, which was chair of the board and the, the president of the holding company above all of that. Right, of, of Western. So yes, this really did start when the COO, I mean, we, we, I've been reading about it today, it really did start when they set out to find a replacement for the COO and and so forth. So this was really a corporate move. At the same time, I mean, when, when Galen Weston took on this role in 2021, uh, temporary as it may have been, I mean, he had been the face. I think a lot of people would have been forgiven for thinking he was the, the president, right? I mean, <laughs> he kind of was the public, he's always been the public face or has been at least for the past while. Um, but in this case, I mean, it was a bit of a bit of a poison chalice for him because he wound up right on the front lines of a lot of uncomfortable conversations for him. Well, of course, uh, again, when you become the CEO, you don't control the environment around you. No one expected all the things that we saw with COVID. And then, excuse me, when COVID came to an end, the sudden bounce back that triggered all this inflation. So you're right. He became on the front lines. But I don't think he's going to go anywhere. In other words, for the rest of this year, he's still the CEO. I think he'll still appear in those same folksy commercials and the insider reports and what have you. And then it'll be up to the new CEO whether he would like to take over that role and become the chatty person in your living room or whether he still wants Galen to do that, and they'll have that discussion as they go forward. Um, but, but again, let me just give you one of the quick example. You know, yes, that ha- terrible pay raise. Oh, my gosh, the optics of giving him a pay raise. I suspect what's happened is as they did this international search for a CEO and were recruiting for people, this is when the consultant said, you know, you're not paying the CEO of a $43 billion corporation enough And I suspect what they said is, let's give this raise while Galen's here. Let him be the lightning rod for this, so that when Per Bank shows up next year, that's not going to be the thing that dogs him right out of the gate. So I think, again, I give credit to Galen. I think he's cleaning things up so that Per Bank can come in with a clean slate and take the company wherever it needs to go. Yeah, tell me a bit about Parabank because he he it's it, he does come. I mean, he will be a bit of an unknown quantity to the average Canadian, but he comes with quite the CV, and he comes from running an organization. And I'm sure this is no mistake. He comes from running an organization in Denmark very similar to the Loblaw, the Greater Loblaw organization. Well, if you don't mind, let's start there, and then we'll go to Parabank. Again, when I say Loblaws to you, most people think, oh, yeah, I know about all those grocery stores. They forget that Loblaws acquired Shoppers Drug Mart and that chain. And then they also forget that Loblaws is behind President's Choice Financial. And they serve millions of customers with an online banking and credit cards and what have you. This is why the combined company is $43 billion. It's not just groceries anymore. It's so much more. So when you look for a replacement CEO, you have to 
look globally. Now, Europe has a very big integrated supply chain, and this company that Per Bank has been associated with out of Denmark doesn't have as many locations as uh, as uh, Loblaws does in Canada, only 7,000, but it is one of the biggest things going in Europe. And on the European continent, if you ask people, what is the CEO that, that seems to be youthful and energetic and has got some good ideas, that's a name that comes to the list, and they've been able to recruit him over here. It'll be interesting to see how much he chooses to be visible when he arrives in 2024, or he's going to let some other people run the show. Uh, We can't tell from over there. He is somewhat invisible in Europe, but he may see a different environment here in Canada. Yeah, I mean... What sort of challenges do you think he faces coming into this one? Because you're right. I mean, a lot of the structure is still there. He's not coming in to take over from, I mean, there, you know, anytime I think a lot of there was misconception today that this was sort of Galen Weston's farewell. If not, it's nothing like that. He's just simply stepping back from this one role. But, uh, but there'll be a lot of pressure on Pear Bank to to succeed in a market he mightn't know that well. Yeah, so let's again come at that in two ways, if you don't mind. Uh, Running a large retailer in Canada or North America is not easy. We've watched... uh uh, shoppers are not shoppers. Very good, Marvin. Tra- Target yeah. come into Canada, <laughs> uh, yeah. blow roughly five billion dollars, and tuck their tail and run back. We've seen Sears fail. We've seen uh, the Bay struggling to find a format. They've tried to reintroduce the Zellers brand. To I don't know how much success they're having there. So it is difficult to be the leader and keep leading. And that is Pear Bank's biggest challenge. It's not that they've got any problems internally. Generally speaking, Loblaws and his associated brands are well-managed. But if I'm a $43 billion company, well, you know what the shareholders want. Let's make it a $50 billion company. Let's make it a $60 billion company. Keep on growing. And that is going to be tough. The other two major players in this market, uh, Empire, which owns the Safeway and Sobeys brands, and then Metro, which is sort of based out of Quebec, they're not looking to give up market share at any time. And with those three players, it's kind of like the battle between Telus and Rogers and Bell. I don't think any of them are going to trip. So I suspect, I suspect that this might look a bit more like Canadian Tire that found its route to grow by buying something like SportCheck and then getting into Mark's Work Warehouse. Initially, you wouldn't see where there's any synergy between those three brands, but that's how they've been able to grow their their store over time. So I won't be shocked if in late 2024, 2025, maybe Pear Bank finds a another chain to add to the thing to keep that growth going. That's his big challenge. Harvard Ryder is with us this half hour. We're talking about uh, Galen Weston stepping aside from one of his one of his many roles, but as president of the Law Blog Group of Companies today. Marvin's a professor of marketing and entrepreneurship at McMaster University in Hamilton. Uh, it was interesting because one of the things I was reading today was that this was in many ways of a company, at least, you know, the grocery, taking Galen Weston out of that role that we became so accustomed. I mean, you know, he's been mocked for it. He's been admired for it. But that sort of folksy role he played of, you know, the everyman buying his groceries and testing these cookies for you or this barbecue sauce is great. I can vouch for it. That they're going to take him out of that role. That we, we've seen the, that this has been the end of that. Uh, and I'm wondering what you make of it. Do you think that's true? Well, again, a couple of things. Uh, uh, to take on that role of an everyman is a bit of a surprise because the Weston family itself is uh, an old and powerful and wealthy family here in Ontario. 
Uh, if you go far enough back, I think it's to his great-grandfather, it was George Weston, who started a bakery, and they made bread. That's where they started with. Today, the Westons aren't in the bread business at all. That's they right. migrated over that as they went through the various iterations. And this is actually Galen Weston, Jr. His father just uh, passed away a couple of years ago. So the, 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 the family business has been passed down, and it's unusual to actually see a family business go past about three generations. Usually, whatever made the first person, the entrepreneur made magic happen, it starts to get diluted as you go through per other generations. But he's been able to keep it going. And yet at the same time, even though he and the family are worth uh, hundreds of millions, if not a billion plus dollars, he was able to, you know, put on a cardigan and look in the camera and he made you feel a little folksy and homey. And as you say, I, I pick these cookies just for you, or I'm going to cook up yeah. some corn on the cob with fresh vegetables just for you. And it worked. Uh, I, I'm reminded of, if you go far enough back, to a fellow named Dave Nickel, who had been president yep. at the Loblaws Group, who had the exact same touch. It was during his time as the president that they came up with President's Choice products, and it worked really well for them. Also came up with the no-name labels back under Dave Nickel, too. So, you know, not every CEO chooses to become the spokesperson front and center. For instance, I'm sure you can't name the president of Empire or the president of the, uh, of the Metro Group. They have become invisible. They'll sort of let their products do the talking. But Galen seemed quite comfortable in the spokesperson role. Therefore, to your point, I think you'll still see him in 2023. And then that question will be answered when Per Bank gets here. Do you still want Galen to be there now? Not because he's paid the millions of dollars to be the CEO, but because there's something about his personality that you want to keep going, or do you want to try going in a different direction? As Galen uh, Jr. is getting a little older, if I'm trying to keep up with the millennials, maybe you need somebody else who's a little more tech-friendly and savvy and an influencer in another way. Yeah, I, I wouldn't imagine that poor Pear had to try on that cardigan as part of his vetting process to become the new CEO. Uh, no, I've been I looking into so. his background. He doesn't do this in Denmark, apparently. He doesn't do those folksy commercials in Denmark. As far as I can tell, I've been looking around. That's correct. As far as I can tell, he's more of the model of the traditional CEO. So will they keep Galen in some way? And, uh, you know, I can also tell you this in retail. If you change your uh, promotional strategy and it doesn't work, you sometimes go back, as, as we're even yep. seeing, you know, with the idea of bringing Zellers back for the Bay. If there's that kind of nostalgia, for all we know, in five years, there may be real nostalgia to see Galen's face again. Yeah, indeed. And, and, and all underlying all of this, of course, is that the company is doing really well these days. I mean, part of the reason people are so, uh, there's been so much animosity to, in some senses aimed at Galen, fairly or unfairly, is because the company is doing great. It is. But see, this is why it's a little hard to look at the overall performance of the Loblaws companies and then link it back to food inflation. For instance, one of the things that's doing really well for them is the banking side of this. They have right. figured out, just like Canada's major banks have figured out, that the fees you can charge, what have you, is a great source of revenue. Now, it all gets lumped in together. So when you see these extraordinary profits, should we really be blaming food inflation on the banking operation or the drugstore operation? And his argument, and I realize I'm, I'm speaking to people who don't want to hear this argument, he says our markup has remained the same, but our volume has gone up. So if I make the same percentage profit, but on twice as much sales, yes, my overall profit is twice as big, but it's the margin you want to look at. And, and I can say, as someone who studies these kinds of things, there is no sign that their profit margin has gone up. Their volume has gone up. 
but in terms of how much they're making on every dollar they sell, still runs at about 4%. Marvin Ryder, thank you so much for your time tonight. Glad to be with you. Speaking of great marketing success stories, if Galen Weston's commercials were a big success for uh, Loblaw over the years, uh, let's talk about one that just transcends uh, any business class, and that is the relationship between Nike and Michael Jordan. It began back in 1984. Nike was still pretty much seen as a shoe for runners. Michael Jordan had just been drafted third overall by the Bulls, but their partnership, he hadn't even played an NBA game yet. Their partnership would be a game changer. The company went all in on the rookie with a five-year, $2.5 million endorsement deal and an offer that no one else would or could make. The promise to allow Jordan to create his own signature shoe. And that was how the Air Jordan was born. The rest is history. And it's a story told in a new Ben Affleck, Matt Damon movie called Air. Here's a snippet. 1984 has been a tough year. Our sales are down. Our growth is down. Sonny, I brought you in here to grow the basketball business. People don't know what the hell a Nike is. What's a Converse? NBA all-star shoe. There's nothing cool about Nike. You would have to have a pretty compelling pitch. I can tell them the one thing the other companies can't compete with. Our basketball division is terrible. I do not love it. This is where you come up with a brilliant idea that no one else can see. Let's hear it. I found him. Who's that? Jesus? Can't afford it. I'm willing to bet my career on one guy. My name's Sonny Vaccaro. I'm with Nike. Do you typically make it a habit of showing up at people's front doors unannounced? I don't like to take no for an answer. Oh, man. Here we go. You ask me what I do here. This is what I do. I find you players, and I feel it this time. Okay, it's risky. When you were selling sneakers out of the back of your Plymouth, that was risky. Don't change that now. For a rookie. Yes. Who's never set foot on an NBA court. That's the literal definition of rookie. Yeah. What's the plan? We build a shoe line around just him. I need the greatest basketball shoe that's ever been made. Who's the player? Michael Jordan. Yeah. The origin story of the Air Jordan. With more on this is Tilo Kunkel. He's an associate professor at the School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management at Temple University in Philadelphia. Tilo, thank you. Thanks for having me. When one thinks of great marketing stories of of the late '80s, this has to be, or the late 20th century, this has to be the one. Uh, you know, but Nike to go back in time because it seems hard to imagine these days. But even in the late 70s, early 80s, Nike was was just another one of many running shoes out there and not a particularly popular one. Absolutely. I think what we looking looking back, it's always easy to say, yeah, it was always happen, going to happen as they are very innovative and they have done really well in hiring good people and letting them do their thing. But you're absolutely right. It's they were one of many, and this deal has certainly really helped them put their foot down on the court. And luckily for them, basketball is one of the largest sports that they were able to dominate. So, tell me from a from a you know just a business point of view, this initial push to sign this first deal with a with you know a very very successful college basketball player, but someone who had never set foot on the court in NBA in the NBA. How much, how brave a move was it at the time? It's certainly a brave move. Um, when, when we're looking back now, particularly with analytics and scouting has, in, has 
evolving so much. It's now I think we we understand have a good understanding who is going to be a superstar down the road and who isn't. But back then this was really more of a flying dark and I have a hunch this guy will be really good. And obviously that hunch worked out really well. But it's it's been a big big bet that they made, not just on hey, well let's sign an endorser, but Let's sign an endorser and give them royalties for the sale for a very long period of time. When one looks at the, at the initial deal, I think it was two point five million dollars. That was the first sneaker contract, right? Plus loyal, plus royalties, and their their sales targets were were in retrospect incredibly modest because they blew right past them in a matter of months. Yeah, very modest, and and it. Shows well, now we're thinking about well, it was like, yeah, they had this plan and they knew it would work out, but these sales targets that they set themselves are an indication that they did not expect the success they were having. You know, it's one thing to have success, it's one thing to, to, to for something to blow up on you, it's another thing to capitalize on it. And, and one, when one looks at Nike's history, you're always struck by the fact that they've been able to capitalize on their opportunities, and this was one of them. This was certainly one of them. And as they have been moving forward with the partnership with Michael Jordan, particularly the launch of the Jordan brand as a standalone brand, not just as a product brand within Nike, is showing the progression of their innovative approach. And it's showing the progression of how Nike has been able to capitalize on opportunities, as well as the growth of those opportunities. Yeah, Nike sold $70 million worth of Air Jordans within two months of their release in April of 1985. Uh, when you think back to it, it that is that is a remarkable number. And in, in many ways, it, it changed the way that sports sponsorships worked forever and ever from that point on. How, how deep an impact did it have, uh, even in the 80s? And then, I mean, we still see it today. Yeah, we we seen sponsorship and then shoe endorsers before with Converse and basketball players in the seventies. So that wasn't the novel part. But I think what we really see with with Michael Jordan and the deal with with Nike is really betting on one athlete and betting big on one athlete and really launching product lines in association with us as well as really long term deals. And I think that has really sparked. A movement for other athletes. We see it now with Steph Curry's long-term partnership with Under Armour. We see it with Jonas Antetokounmpo in the NBA. We see it also with Roger Federer, who's uh, actually bought equity in on uh, running shoes when they were still a private company and has quit his, his deal with Nike and has actually bet and gone full on with on, so to speak, and has massively benefited from them going public. So we see it more and more. And I think that inspiration from from Jordan and that example of this is a great example of how it could and should work is what more and more athletes are actually looking to and see as an inspiration. Yeah, when one looks at Jordan, one really thinks of the first big athlete brand, right? I mean, there'd always been famous athletes before, whether it be in basketball or American football, soccer, um, hockey, whatever. There'd been big stars, but never before had a big star been associated with their own thing. You could buy a piece of that star by owning the shoe with their name on it. And that, to me, even at the time, was uh, was remarkable. It was. And I think what made it even more remarkable was that it wasn't just a regular endorsement deal. They were breaking the rules of the NBA when 
having a colorful shoe where the NBA didn't allow for color to be worn on the court. So, and Nike paid for that fine every game he stepped on the court. So it was amazing marketing for Nike to create brand awareness as in, yep, is he wearing the controversial shoe again? Yes, he is. All eyes on the shoe. At the same time, you could buy a piece of that that being a rebel and not fitting in and not complying to all of the rules. So it wasn't only you could buy a piece of Jordan, you could buy a piece of standing out and not conforming to the rules. Yeah, it's sort of marketing 101, isn't it? I mean, when you you describe it that way, that is the essence of good marketing is produce a product that people want to not just put on their feet, but identify with. In hindsight, it's marketing 101, but doing it and doing it so successful that is marketing 1001. I mean, we're really talking about the execution at the the highest level. What was the key to it, you think? I mean, not from the, we, I think a lot of us understand, you know, Michael Jordan's phenomenal success on the court had a lot to do with the popularity of the shoe, the time as well, hip hop culture, hip hop itself became very popular in the 80s in America, but there were many brands competing for all of this. What do you think that Nike did right? Uh, Nike certainly, as I said, particularly the being a rebel and paying the fine for introducing color on the court helped them massively. And then going all in on one, when we're looking at product launches or when we're looking at successful startup companies, um, what we see many companies doing wrong is that they try to do too many things at once. And Nike really backing one athlete and doing that all in is what helped them a lot with creating their niche and within that niche, going all in in that niche. And for them, luckily, as you just mentioned, the hip-hop culture, the the explosion of basketball in that the connection to lifestyle as well has massively benefited from them dominating basketball. Tilo Kunkel is an associate professor at the School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management at Temple University in Philadelphia. We're talking about the the now well known success of Air Jordans. Of course, it's a um, the the, uh, the theme of a new movie called Air with Viola Davis and Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Um, Tilo, when you look at look at just the broader impact it's had, and you've talked about this uh, right right outside of sport, this became a much bigger thing about footwear and our relationship to the fact that the sneaker moved from being a you know a pretty utilitarian product to being sort of high end footwear, and that happened sort of via the Jordan. Absolutely, I think when we're looking at sneakers, particularly basketball shoes, they have really carved the way for. Uh, footwear and, and sports footwear to make it into lifestyle. And I think we mentioned earlier the relationship that people had when they saw Michael Jordan and they saw him being a rebel and breaking the rules and stepping on the court with the colorful shoes where it wasn't allowed. I think that rebel is something that we see now associated with wearing sneakers and uh, one great example I have was at the recent NBA All-Star Game and event in, in Utah where I attended some of the events. Uh, you see lots of people in suits dressed up, but they're wearing the Air Jordans. So it's that combination. Now it's fine to uh, wear your basketball sneakers to your business meetings. And it shows something that you are not just conforming to everything, but you're still dressed up nice. And this basketball sneaker itself is now considered, well, you could wear it as a dress shoe. Go ahead. 
Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't wear a pair of Larry Bird Converse All-Stars in 1983 with a suit, right? I mean, that just wasn't the way they were seen. And you're right, it's changed. What do you think has allowed um, the brand to endure so much longer than Michael Jordan's individual career? I think he's definitely encompassed a few things that we're really looking forward. He had this really unique style and he stood out. And while we praising Michael Jordan, and he deserves a lot of praise for his charisma, his on-the-field performance, and all of these different aspects. I think Nike's marketing campaigns that they have been launching for him for over 20 years have a lot to do with it, as in they have portrayed him in the best possible light ever. Uh, In the mid-90s, we had to be like Mike, where a whole generation, me included, we grew up, we wanted to be like Mike, we wanted to play basketball like Mike wanted a piece of Mike. And and I think that's certainly something that has helped Michael Jordan for uh, all of his other business ventures and his endorsement deals with other companies as well, that Nike had a massive investment in Michael Jordan. And sure, they benefited a lot from his exposure as well. But Nike invested heavily into him. And that has benefited him beyond all of his Nike deals. And that's what really has solidified the Jordan brand at this point to be a lifestyle brand, to be what I consider a luxury lifestyle brand that is not just saturating basketball, but is now also pushing into soccer with their deal with Paris Saint-Germain in pushing into European soccer with their Champions League appearances and so on. Yeah, I read that Michael Jordan had earned $19 billion in the U.S. in five years uh, leading up to, uh, I think, to 2023, just alone, just on, on sneaker sales alone. So uh, certainly far more than he ever made as a player back back in his day when players didn't have as massive contracts as they do today. But $19 billion is a lot of money. Yeah, it's done a lot. I mean, you know, obviously Nike affiliated themselves with Tiger Woods, with LeBron James. You know, the the, the move they made with, with, um, with Michael Jordan sort of set a template for for them too, where now, I mean, Mike, Nike is clearly uh, ahead of the pack when it comes to popularity in in all forms of sports, uh, clothing and and shoes, you name it. Absolutely, and I think they've set an example for other clothing companies to follow in their footsteps. If we look in at the industry, their biggest competitor, arguably Adidas, have announced a shift in their strategy a few years ago, where they decided that they are going to invest less on team sponsorship and work closer with individual athletes. And so they've transitioned from that team to the individual athlete focus. And I think that's what Nike has been paving that path forward, starting with that Michael Jordan deal. Yeah. The irony here being, of course, if uh, one thing, if you look at the old Michael Jordan interviews, that you know what brand he wanted to be affiliated with when he was coming out of university? Adidas. That was That was the one he liked the most. But they just weren't ready for him. They couldn't do it. And they weren't ready to commit all in as as Nike did. That's something that we we did talked earlier. As in, it's Nike committed and they went all in on one athlete. And I think that's really what helped them be focused and tell their marketing message. So when we look back, I mean, there there are many um, sort of entrepreneurial and marketing success stories of that era, whether we think about Apple and other things, but I guess the Jordan, just because it's now so ubiquitous, it really does stand out uh, amongst some one of the great marketing successes of the 20th, 20th century. It does. And it also is very salient in our mind because we like to connect marketing success with individuals. So when we think of 
Apple and and Tim Cook. And when we think of uh, or Steve Jobs, we think of Nike and we think of Michael Jordan. So I think that connection to the individual is what makes it stand out even more and make it more salient in our in our mind as well. Unbelievable! I I read the other day that uh, that originally they paid thirty five dollars to get that swoosh designed. <laughs> thirty five bucks back in the seventies or late sixties at some point. And what a what a ride it's been. Uh, Tilo Kunkel, thank you so much for your insight on this. Thank you for having me. My next guest. This is a remarkable story. Uh, he's written a book. And writing a book is no no mean feat, right? Uh, if you've ever tried to sit down and write a full book, it's no mean feat. This is, of course, a very personal one uh, for my next guest. And it's amazing. It started on April the 4th, 2021. He points out Easter Sunday. He says, I found the inspiration to put pen to my first sentence of the book. And two years later, he'd gotten his author's copy and it was released today. And today is a very significant day for Roy Ratnavel because it was today... 35 years ago in 1988, that as an 18-year-old, he got on a plane in Sri Lanka, in Colombo, flew through Amsterdam, and on the 19th, so tomorrow, well, technically today, if you're in Toronto, he landed at Pearson Airport by himself, $50 in his pocket, fleeing violence, strife, and sectarianism in Sri Lanka, where he's from, as a young Tamil, and coming to Canada with nothing by himself coming to this country with little more than a dream. The advice of his father, who was actually killed three days after he left, the advice of his father and the grit and determination to make it happen. Well, today he is the very image of that success story. He's an executive vice president at one of Canada's leading independent asset companies. He's been recognized as one of the top executives in the country. But again, 35 years ago today, he was a teenager with 50 bucks in his pocket and dreams of a better life. Um, he worked as a security guard amongst many other things that he did while well, he put himself through school, first high school, then through the University of Toronto. He would start in the mailroom of the same company where today he is an executive vice president. In so many ways, it is one of those stories of overcoming obstacles and finding your way in a new land that are inspirational to all of us. I mean, I think in all our family, many of our families, those of us who immigrated here, which is not all of us, but most of us, um, have these stories within our family. Uh, But Roy Ratnavels is particularly compelling given the fact that he's put it all down in a book that was released today because of the symbolism of today. 35 years ago, again, he boarded a plane in Sri Lanka. 35 years ago, tomorrow, today, he landed in Toronto and his new life began. He's put it all down in a book called Prisoner 1056, How I Survived War and Found Peace. It's published by Penguin Random House Canada. Again, it was released today on this symbolic 35-year anniversary. Uh, He is now the executive vice president or an executive vice president at CI Financial. And Roy Ratnavel joins me now. Roy, thank you and congratulations on the book. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate that. Yeah, a big day for you. I mean, I I know the the idea of writing a book, sitting down and writing a book is all one thing. To watch it actually be released is something very different. I am incredibly honored that uh, I was able to tell the collective story of Tamils to the world about where we came from and where we are going and the, the lessons we learned from suffering and how well the community has adopted to the new environment in Canada and other parts of developed countries uh, leaving Sri Lanka 30 years ago. 30 years is defined as one generation. 
So I always say that in one generation, we were collectively able to go from misery to prosperity in just one generation. So it's a, a story that uh, the Tamil community feel so proud about. And and of course, it could not have happened unless there are countries like Canada opened the doors to the Tamil refugees. Right. Take me back to your childhood, because I know um, you were born in the capital, Colombo, but left. And there were there was a lot of tension in Sri Lanka at the time. You wound up uh, up north. And then, uh, like many teens, there was a big clampdown on Tamil teenagers uh, at the time. And you got caught up in that. Correct. I was born in 69 in the south of the country in Colombo, the capital city. And my father worked there in the railways. And when I was about five, the tensions between the Tamils and the Sinhalese were coming to a simmer. And it was happening since the 48 when the British left uh, Sri Lanka, gave the independence. Uh, the majority, the Sinhalese, predominantly Buddhist, and the minority, the Tamils, predominantly Hindus, were coexisting. And then over time, it led to resentments between the two ethnic groups. And the Sinhalese government, majority Sinhalese government, enacted discriminatory laws that basically uh, curtailed Tamil's advancement. So a few decades later, in 83, 1983, riots broke out, the race riot called Black July, mm-hmm. uh, July of 1983. So before that, my father sensed that the, the, the South wasn't secure for his boys, myself and my brother, who's six years older than me, and decided to send my mom, my brother, and myself to the North, which is where the most Tamils live, and he felt that would be safer for us. And he remained in the South. So I, you know, just like any teenager, had a fun life, and it was a coastal city and so much to do, great food and lots of love and families. And then uh, everything changed. Uh, And the clashes started between the Tamil Tigers against the Sri Lankan government. In 87, Sri Lankan government... uh, launched an operation called Operation Liberation, May of 1987. I was about 17 years old. And uh, yeah, they rounded up anyone between the age of 14 and 40. They called it the ideal age for combat. About 2,500 of us, a lot of my friends were part of that 2,500, put us in a cargo ship and uh, took us down to the south. A few days later, we ended up in a prison camp in where I, along with many people, were subjected to unspeakable torture at the age of 17. And so I I was one of the unfortunate ones that spent two and a half months in there uh, in the hands of the uh, tormentors. I mean, for a 17-year-old at that point, your life experience is already so short that to experience that for even a short period of time must make you wonder what could possibly be next. Yeah, I mean, it two and a half months felt like 20 years uh, sitting in there um, because you just don't know when the beating is coming. You don't know when the torture is coming. You just don't know when you're going to gonna get a bullet in the head because I don't know how many of them expired inside the walls of the prison, but I know very many of my friends that we never got to see again. In the book, I do talk about one situation where when we were in the ship, 17 years old, we were all shackled. 10 people to a chain. And uh, one kid had uh, just pure exhaustions, the heat and everything, and just passed out. And soldiers came and kicked him in the head, started to get him to get up. And obviously, he wasn't moving. And uh, they just unshackled him and threw him into the ocean. And uh, 
I never forgotten that. It was so horrific for all of us to watch one of our friends getting thrown away overboard into the middle of the Indian Ocean. Yeah. You do manage to get out like 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 others that didn't you do manage to 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 get out of jail and your father makes a very fateful decision for you at that point knowing that there just can't be a future for you on the island anymore yeah and you know against my protest of course and i didn't want to leave sri lanka despite the fact that i you know uh, was subjected to torture and and but you know obviously he was thinking that there's no future for a young Tamil boy in that country, and it could never happen. So um, he made the right call, obviously, looking back now in hindsight. Um, at the time, uh, I didn't want to leave my family, understandably. I was afraid to to go far away to a country that I'd never been to. You know, I don't know the culture. I spoke a little bit of English, but certainly not fluently. And he uh, wrote a letter to the Canadian um High Commission in, in Sri Lanka and uh, pleading my case. And uh, to his surprise, he got a reply from the High Commission and they gave us an interview to which he took me. And uh, he spent his life studying literature and and and, and he's well-versed in English and English literature. And he was my first English teacher, to be honest. And he told me how to conduct the interview and how to speak to these uh, counselor officers. And anyways, I went in there and the... The visa officer, Robert Orr, who uh, was my... You remember his officer. name. You remember his name. Yes, I do. In fact, uh, I'll tell you something just on the, on the side here, that I was at an investment panel in Vancouver in 2017, June of 2017. And I was just talking about my experience of coming to Canada and, and how it's been great to me and all that. And Unbeknownst to me, those gentlemen on the same panel said, to me, so I mentioned Robert Orr's name, just like just the way I'm mentioning to you, he even kind of joked about the fact that I only knew that when I came here, there was a famous hockey player on Bobby Bobby Orr. So he came and introduced himself to me and said, him and Bob Orr, uh, Robert Orr, um, were in the same diplomatic corps back in the day, and he gave me his contact information. So I immediately sent him an email. We reconnected after 30 plus years later in Ottawa. And he was completely moved. He said something that really got tattooed in my head. He said, I only see the before picture. I never see the after picture. This really, right. gives, this really gives me purpose for my job that I did. And it's it, it's my legacy now. And and so today is my book launch in Scarborough, in, in, uh, in Toronto here. And I am inviting him as one of the speakers on stage. Roy Ratnavel is uh, an executive vice president at CI Financial, but today he is most of all an author. His book is released, Prisoner 1056, How I Survived War and Found Peace. Uh, Roy, we've covered a lot of your childhood. Uh, you end up on a plane to Toronto, like so many who come to this country for the first time in the last 50 years or so. You land. What was that experience like to land for the first time in this strange city on the other side of the world? Yeah, I mean, I um, I had to connect through Amsterdam. That was my um, right. my route, Colombo, Amsterdam, Amsterdam, Toronto. And uh, my father gave me hundred dollars U.S. at the airport in Colombo, and uh, and I was spending about seven hours layover in Amsterdam, and I was walking around window shopping, and I saw this pair of Adidas shoes. I'm like, right. hmm, I should probably get one of those because I didn't like the shoes I was wearing. So then, needless to say, I ended up having 50 bucks in my pocket. So in the plane, I was contemplating, I mean, what kind of Canadian would I be and where do I even begin? And I was obviously very stressed and concerned and scared. 
Plus, you know, I was still dealing with trauma of torture and and then also worried about my family, what would happen to my father and mother. They are going to be they are still exposed to the threats that I was exposed to before I left. As we were descending into Pearson International Airport, I saw this uh, CN Tower that I heard so much about living in Sri Lanka, the largest single standing structure at that time. And I was thinking, what humans can do if they just apply themselves to creating things and destroying things. And looking at this thing piercing through the clouds, I remember thinking that uh, this is what freedom and free enterprise looks like, that humans can actually do these things. So it was in that way, reflecting on it, thinking that I am going to the right place. And then landing uh, into Toronto, the first thing I noticed was the uh, uniformed officers staffing the airport security and the customs desk. And uh, arriving from a uh, uh, from a country like Sri Lanka, where my members of the Tamil community are routinely abused, routinely abused uh, by the country's police and the army, I had learned to associate such uniforms with terror, understandably so. So when I saw two well-built Canadian police officers walking toward me, I tense reflexively, to say the least. But as they, as we passed by the corridor, uh, they merely looked at me and said, good afternoon, with big smiles. And it was at that moment that I decided to become a Canadian. And the rest, they say, is history. Uh, I landed on April 18th, 1988. And today is April 18th, 2023. Exactly 35 years later, I'm talking to you as a 53-year-old man with a blessed life in this country. And I purposely chose today to be the launch day of the book because it is symbolic to me that I left a country of oppression and bigotry to a country of understanding and civility, just friendly fairness, I should say. Roy Ratnavel, uh, his his book is out today. He's an executive vice president at CI Financial. That's his day job. Uh, but today, 35 years after he arrived in Canada from Sri Lanka, the book Prisoner 1056, How I Survived War and Found Peace is out. Roy, I mean, it's hard to cover 35 years in 10 minutes, but you land here at the age of, uh, as a teenager with $50 in your pocket. Where does one even begin at that point? Uh, do you know what you want to be? Do you have things you want to achieve? Or you just sort of, how do you set out on this journey that brought you here 35 years later? Yeah. So um, my father was big into higher education. And and that's one of the reasons he sent me to Canada to get a better education and certainly also safety of his, his son. And my brother by then, he's, as I said earlier in the, in the conversation, he's older than me. He already left to live in Europe. And so it was me that was living and he was concerned. So he sent me to Canada and I still remember clearly uh, my father's advice. Um, he said, I'm sending you to Canada not to survive, but to live. Work hard, study hard. Whatever you do, don't embarrass the family by living on handouts. And that was seared into my head as something that I needed to make sure that that I honored his words. I've learned from my virtues and, and flaws from my, my father. So I landed here on the 18th, uh, sorry, 19th of uh, April, 1988. I left Sri Lanka on the 18th. Two days later, uh, a tragic event happened in our family. My father was shot and killed in the town of Point Pedro, which was, which Where is you west. Living, yeah. Yeah, so I was living. Basically, he was uh, going back to 
close off some uh, ongoing matters and, and he was shot and killed. My father's untimely death left me with the feeling that I had to live for two people. I thought if I did well enough in life, somehow I could make up for the life he should have had. So my father's death basically made me grow faster and become a fighter. And I used that pain uh, of his loss as the coal for my furnace of ambition, per se. And uh, really, at the end of the day, um, everything was driven by his memory in, in one way. In, in some ways, it's probably not, not that healthy. And I do talk about that in the, in the book, about how I became single-focused and I forgot about everything else. And most of it came at the, the expense of, of family and friends because I was mm-hmm. so focused on one goal, which is to show that I'm going to build a life of prosperity and happiness for him. And another way also to me is that that's the only way I can get back at the tormentors. If I thought, if I'm a failure, always thinking about my past and crying about it and becoming a victim, then they win. Uh, I didn't want them to win. I want them to lose. The only way for them to lose for me to win, only, only way for me to win is to really live a life of uh, happiness and prosperity. It's a tough foundation to build on, isn't it? To build on pain. Yeah, because I was 18. I didn't know how to deal with grief. I bottled it all up. Uh, I never cried when I heard of my hero father dying. Then, of course, I was worried about my mother now at the time. She was also my mom was 44 at the time. My father was 53. The funny thing is, uh, I was 18 uh, when he died and he was 53. I remember thinking, in some way, I thought he lived a long life because he was 53. Now that I'm 53, I'm thinking what a young man he was when he passed on. And my son now is 18. So right. this oh, whole wow. thing is... Uh, you know, I never circle planned of this life. Way. Yeah, exactly. Life. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You must have faced challenges. I mean, I, I know how much you just from from, you know, looking through the book and so on, just how much how hard you worked to get where you worked. You really did work your way up at CI, amongst other things. You really you know, started at the bottom and worked your way way up. Um, but you must have faced challenges over time as well. What was that like? How did you overcome those who, who would look at you and say, no, you're not going to make it? Yeah, I mean, there there were enough people doubting me. And the thing is, I was, again, I, I was basically, uh, my father has been a great influence on me. And he used to tell me that, uh, you know, there are two type of problems in the world, yours and everybody else's. Right. Nobody will fix yours. You got to fix your own. And two, hard work wins. There's dignity in hard work. And then three, always differentiate yourself. Do more than what you're asked the other thing is uh, he used to drill into my head called uh, do things to perfection. So I kind of carry that with me. I wouldn't say all the time. I mean, most of the time, I would try to do those things. I'll work harder than the person next to me. I'll do things better than the person next to me. Never complained. And I think you, when you read through the book, you'll know that I did three jobs at the age of 19. I was working in a factory. I was cleaning office buildings at night. Uh, in downtown on Bay Street. And that's what also got me to think about Bay Street and wanted to work on Bay Street. And then the weekends, I would I would uh, work in a, a construction site as a security guard, uh, all the while trying to finish my high school at night. So I was never shy to do hard work. And I think that's what propelled me. And I, I think that every bosses I had have been 
absolutely stunned by my work ethic and and the focus I had. And also to CI's credit, I had incredible, incredible mentors from the CEO to head of marketing and sales. You know, sometimes in life, you luck out a little bit. You know, they, you got to work hard, but then you have a little bit of luck. Not everybody works hard, makes it to the top, that's for sure. But I also had some incredible mentors that that guided me along. One of them is coming tonight to, to the event as well. And I always believe that um, you got to have a attitude of gratitude because gratitude is is the only thing that makes sense of your past. And you can never forget people who have uh, lifted you up. There are plenty of people to push you down too, don't get me wrong. The world is not amazing. It, it, it has a share of horrible human beings, but I was lucky enough to have more than my share of great people in, in this country that helped me out. Yeah. I mean, this book is in a way, as you mentioned it before we started, it is it is a book about about overcoming obstacles, but it's also a thank you. Yeah, it is a homage to Canada. And you know, I dedicated the book to freedom and, and, and democracy. And the reason I did that is because it is important. And I do give the Canadians and people who live in the free world to, to them to understand that Freedom of speech is a non-negotiable Western value. We all have to die on this hill. And, and the, the reason I say that is because there are countries out there, like the ones I I left behind, restricts personal freedom. And uh, in my mind, the only two things that people should be guaranteed in life is freedom and choice. And when you have that, you will be rewarded for the good choices you make, and you'll be punished for the bad ones. And that's the price of freedom. So I keep inserting that into my son by saying, look, you know, there's plenty of things to complain about in life. You will never improve your life by having battles with the society or past failings of society. And so when I came here, I I had enough things to really get mad about, but I just need one thing to to give me gratitude and and to really apply myself. Amazing that that the day you landed back in uh, in April April nineteenth nineteen eighty eight Brian Mulroney was the prime minister at the time. He's uh, written in your he he endorses your book as well, which is which is again just to to complete the circle. Uh, here he is, the prime minister when you landed in this new country. The 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 person at the top then has has endorsed this journey of yours. Um, what was that like? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, first of all I wanted to reach out to him through my connections to see if he would uh, endorse or read the book first. And then if he liked it, would he endorse it? And I was, to my surprise, he uh, not only endorsed it, he gave an amazing review of it. I was humbled and, and honored that right honorable Brian Mulroney would endorse the book. And it really does complete the uh, the circle here because, as you said, he was the prime minister uh, when I came and I thought it would just be monumental to get his uh, endorsement. Do you ever think you'll put your feet up and and look back at all of this and say, "Okay, I, I did what I had to do," or does does do you continue to be driven by the many things that have driven you this far? I think what I want to do is I'm a big fan of really uh, giving back to society. So I am trying to mentor, like my mentors have done for me. Uh, it's paying it forward. And so I'm finding the immigrants who come here. Uh, I'm I'm helping them network. I'm um, helping them with their professional careers, putting them in touch with people that I know who can hire them. 
we want to leave this amazing country when we leave, uh, check out from this planet. We want to leave this country better than we have found it. And I, I truly believe that we have something really special here and people should never forget that. And Canada isn't perfect. No country is perfect, but I can tell you it's a million times better than what's out there. Yeah, you must see a, a younger version of yourself every time you see security guards or construction workers or people cleaning offices. You must see the young you there somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I it, it is it is hard not to notice. Um, and I take the time to talk to them. And I know every one of them has some story that is most of the people who are here ran away from something bad. And so, yeah, to see them work hard, uh, to see them, you know, contribute to society, take care of their kids, their family. Uh, that's just an immigrant story. And it's no different than whether it's Italians or the Irish or the Jews. Uh, every single, you know, immigrant group that came here had to go through that process. And Tamils aren't unique to this. We have a different story than some others. But at the end of the day, one of the reasons I like this book and the way I, I told the story is because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter where you're from and which God you pray to or what culture you're from, there are, there are many things that connects human beings. And if we can just open up our eyes and stop focusing on the, the past divisions and focus on the present bonds, I think we'll be a better society. And what would your dad make of all this, do you think? What would your dad, I mean, I, he sounds, sounds like he had very high standards, but what do you think he would make of, of the book and the journey and 35 years from the day that he saw you off? Here you are. He he was a tough marker, so I would say that he might say, hey, son, maybe you should have done this instead. At the end, in the final analysis, I think he'd be happy about how it turned out. And 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 to see my son uh, carrying on that flame of the family, it really brings tears to my eyes because he's, he, he, is, he actually kind of looks like my father, <laughs> which is uh, uncanny. Um, yeah. But also his work ethic and and the the pride that he has as a Tamil, but also pride that he has as, as a Canadian, and and the work ethic that he has, and I think my dad would be extremely proud of what I was able to leave behind when I go, which will be my son, and and I do say that in this book as well is that beyond anything else, I think I will be judged. We will all be judged by what kind of human beings we have created. I want to make sure I leave a, a son here that. Uh, is going to contribute to society and a value, valuable member for this country. Well, Roy Ratnavel, congratulations on the release of the book. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us tonight, um, and good luck. Thank you so much for having me, and, uh, and I appreciate you uh, supporting this and giving me a chance to talk about my story. 